Welcome to The Final Word, a Bible teaching ministry with pastor, teacher, and author Jim Andrews. The Final Word is grounded on the invincible conviction that what the Bible teaches, God teaches. And that is the last word. On this program, truth still matters. The Bible is in, Babel is out. The Final Word is funded by listeners like you. Should you want to partner with us or want other information about the program, please go to our website at thefinalwordradio.com. There you'll find archives so you can listen to any program you may have missed. Visit us on our social media platforms at The Final Word Radio and write us a note. We love hearing from our listeners. We'll provide other contact information at the end of the program, so have your pen ready. And now Jim Andrews continues his current study of God's Word. Good day, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for joining us again on The Final Word. Before I launch today's exposition, I want to make our listening audience aware of some articles that I have written. If you will go to jimandrewsbooks.com, that's one word, jimandrewsbooks.com, you will discover there are some articles that I've produced over the years that you may find interesting and helpful. I'm just happy to share them with you for whatever benefit they may have. We continue our exposition of the Epistle to the Hebrews. We are in Hebrews chapter 10. Our author is dealing with Hebrew Christians who are a little bit on tilt in their faith. They've not overthrown it, but they are considering, he knows, retreating back into Judaism with its legalism and its ritualism. They've kind of lost sight of the verities of the Christian faith. He is doing everything possible to convince them that this would be a fatal, a futile step, that in Christ... We have everything that we need for our salvation and nowhere else. He is superior to everything that they have ever known under the Old Covenant. He himself is our peace. He himself is the basis of the New Covenant, the Covenant of Grace. And it's in his atoning sacrifice and his high priestly ministry in heaven compared to the earthly high priest that they have on earth and the Levitical priesthood. All of that is vastly inferior to what they now have in Christ. They were only types and shadows, and him is the substance and the antitype. So to go back would be foolhardy as well as fatal. But now he's exhorting them here in verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and to good deeds not forsaking our own assembling together, as the habit of some is, but let's be encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Words that are very applicable to us as well as them. Right here is the very essence of the life of faith in verse 23. It's not a spirit of blind optimism that somehow things will turn okay. It's not the idea of some vague belief in the existence of God as a theological proposition is far from it. In fact, in this life, friends, things may go south in a hurry. We may lose almost everything most humans count dear, including our lives. But faith, as the scriptures count faith, is confidence in God's word. Let's hold fast the confession of our hope. It's confidence in what God's Word reveals about God's character, about God's works, particularly His redemptive works, His will, and His promises. 
To this word of God we need to hold fast, whatever the cost, with all perseverance. And in the process of holding fast the faith, the author exhorts us to strengthen and to build up one another. For the design of the church of Jesus Christ is interdependent. Like a body, we are members one of another. And for the common good, we are to support and encourage one another. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good works. If we understand the interdependency of the body of Christ, then each of us know we are obliged before God not to be provocateurs of hate and evil, but stimulators of love and good works. As Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 tells us, You and I were created in Christ Jesus not by good works. In other words, we have our relationship to Christ, we are in Him, not because of any moral merit that belongs to us, but we were created in Christ Jesus for good works, the kind of works that God has already prescribed for us to walk in, prescribed in His words. Whenever we walk in love and go about doing good, as prescribed in the Scriptures, it has a way of stimulating others to follow suit. In a given situation, some acts of love and good works are more impressive and compelling than others. Some have a way of inspiring others to do the same. Our author's not talking about grandstanding do-goodism. He's talking about priming the pump of love and good works by thoughtful, godly initiative. We have a watchword in our church, a church where people care and truth matters. Over the years, I've sometimes been amazed at the way our people rise up and care for one another. You put people in an environment like that, and it's catching like a fever. They see one person jump up and go care for another, and it provokes and stimulates them to do the same. Seeing others extend themselves to their fellow believers has more than once prompted me to do the same. But for that to work as God intended, believers must be in community with one another. That's God's plan. The local church is that community that Christ founded for this purpose. It's not what the world calls community, but it's a community, a fellowship of the Holy Spirit in Christ. So our author admonishes these Hebrew Christians about, verse 25, not forsaking our own assembling together. He notes that is the habit of some, but let's be together encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day, the day of the Lord, the day when the Lord comes drawing near. In the early church, there was the general expectation that the Lord would return sooner rather than later. This in spite of the fact that our Lord had many times left hints, particularly in his parables, that his second coming would not be soon. As time marched on, and the church began to realize that the promise of his second advent and the consummation of our redemption was maybe not just right around the corner, and as discrimination and persecution gathered steam and started to wear many down, spiritual disciplines and obedience grew more lax, and the first love, the initial love of many, like the church of Ephesus, cooled a bit. We don't know the precise dynamics behind this situation among these Hebrew Christians. But like many today, some had evidently grown extremely negligent 
about gathering together, about, we would say today, attending church. Consequently, in their absence, they could not do this. They could not stimulate one another to love and good works. They could not develop the support system that all needed if they were not consistently present in nurturing fellowship. That's not the way God meant it to be. They needed to readjust their habits and to be regularly present. I sometimes will have someone say to me, and they're as well-meaning as they can be, we're going here, we're going there for the next week or wherever, but don't worry, we can always hear you on radio, or we can get the sermon podcast off the website or whatever. Sometimes they say that in passage, and I don't have a chance to answer, but when I do, I will say, you know, it's not about me, it's not just about hearing my sermon, it's about the rest of the people. When you're gone, you're not there, able to stimulate others to love and good works. You leave an empty seat, and an empty seat is discouragement to others who do come. We are such individualists as Americans. There's nothing wrong with individualism. God made us all different, and that individualism is a good thing. Like the flowers of the field, they're all different, and they're all complementary. But to be individualistic, that's a different matter. That's a toxin, where each of us does our own thing without thinking of its impact upon others. It's a form of narcissism, and we Americans love it, and we ought to hate it. A few years ago, I read something written by a well-known pastor of a large suburban church in the northern Midwest here of states. He made the remark that on any given Sunday, fully one-third of his congregation was missing in action. That figure is about what I have found. If you want everybody to hear something, I've always said humorously you have to mention it at least three times before all hear it. So let me just digress a little bit into some application. I want to discuss this issue a bit. I know there are good reasons why some folk would love more than anything to be in church with their families on Sunday, and they just can't do it as regularly as they would like. Apart from the issues of illness and caretaking, there are in this societal structure job situations over which many employees have absolutely no control. They have to earn the income to live. Their choices of employment are severely limited. And the work schedule they have is not negotiable. So they're forced to take it or leave it. That's sad, but sometimes that's just the way it is in this godless world. So as a pastor, I know that the Lord understands those reasons. And he also knows how to fill in the blanks for folks who have no ability to do it for themselves but would really like to. That said, folks, some of us have no such excuses. Some care so little for their own spiritual welfare and are so indifferent to their responsibility to other believers, responsibility to encourage, support, and stimulate them in love and God's good works, that they're willing to use the Lord's Day as a play day. A lot of people who are considered family at any given church are there no more than two Sundays a month, if that. I ask myself, what are you doing? Are you out playing? Are you home fiddling? Probably. Well, friends, if nobody has told you, let me tell you, that's flat wrong. 
On Sundays, we believers belong in the fellowship of saints. We belong there supporting and being supported in Christ. We ought to be in attendance to God's worship, and we ought to be there with other believers offering up corporate prayers and praise to God and hearing from God's Word. Sunday, if you haven't been told lately, is the Lord's Day. It's not a play day. You know, just as an aside but relevant to the point, I hear people talk all the time about stress, 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 stress. And frankly, in many cases, I wonder why all the stress. It seems to me that most people in the workplace work less than ever. In fact, I notice that the emails generally stop Friday about noon. More and more doctors, more and more professionals are taking off Fridays. Now, some of them extend the work week Monday through Thursday and work 10 hours, still get in 40 hours or so. But it seems to me that people are working less. I cannot believe the people who have the time to take every other weekend and go to the mountains, go to the coast, or wherever it is that people go. They're stressed. They take off every long weekend. And these days, it seems, between the government and the schools, we've turned about every other weekend to a three-day pass. And these days, I notice it's becoming sometimes a four-day pass. I have to tell you, I don't get it. Except for vacation, I, for one, generally work seven days a week. There's just no way that I can do my job, just no way, taking off on weekends as much as most people do. I'd never get it done. So I ask myself, why is all the stress, stress that drives people from the church to go out and relieve it? It baffles me. I tell you something, if I work that little, my blood pressure would go down to 90 over 60, I do believe. I've noticed around the Portland area, I can't speak for a place like Pittsburgh, but around the Portland area, the freeways are commonly clogged around noon or before, not 5 o'clock as on other days. Folks, I'm telling you, we need to rehabituate ourselves as Christians. Sunday worship needs to be a habit as regular as breakfast. I talked to a man today who's been in our church only a few years. And he says, Jim, I want to be there. I want to be there every Sunday. Every Sunday you have a message from God for me. Sometimes it may be only two or three words that just stick to me, but I need it. Well, folks, God intended for it to be that way. It's not just to hear the message from God's Word, as important as that is. But you and I need the stimulation and support. I need it. I'm the pastor, and I need it. And if you think you don't, you're wrong. But in any case, others need you. And above all, you need, in a corporate way, to honor the living God. Heading off to some playground or fishing hole or soccer field or home improvement project, now I recognize emergencies, that's a different kind of deal. That's not any way to return thanks to God for all Christ has done for you. That's no way to encourage and provoke one another to love and good works. Just the opposite. Let us draw near, he says, with a sincere heart, with full assurance of faith. Let us hold fast, verse 23, the confession of our hope without wavering. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good works. And then he tells us one way, stop forsaking your own assembling together, as the habit of some is, these Hebrew Christians had that habit that was part of their problem. 
They were getting grainy. They were getting wobbly in their faith. But encouraging one another. And do it all the more as you see the day approaching. Gosh, we need to rehabituate ourselves. Our laxness in the Lord's business infects others with the same spirit of laxness. It's just like a fever. And he says, as you see the day of the Lord approaching, pick it up. Opposition will grow more intense. Obstacles to faith will be great as the day of the Lord approaches. The worse things get, the more we're going to need one another. And if you don't see the storm clouds gathering over this culture, you haven't had your eyes open lately. This is not a time to be futzing around in the faith. Folks, we need to get on the stick. All the more as you see the day approaching. I don't know when the Lord is going to come. That's a truism. But I do know that His coming is nearer than when you and I believed. And as we see the storm clouds on the horizons of our world gathering, one's just got to wonder if it may not be nearer rather than remoter. Whatever it is, the nearer we get to that time, the more things are going to pick up, the more intense, the more difficult things are going to get. We need to be in community as believers. We need to be there to hear the Word of God. We need to be there as a community to pray to God. We need to be there as a community to encourage and to stimulate one another. Enough of this laxness in assembling ourselves together. We go around and we ignore God's plan. And then when things come unglued in our lives, we wonder why the Lord has let us down. Folks, it's the other way around. Now comes another famous warning passage. He goes from exhortation to warning. It'll be followed by strong encouragement. Again, in the strongest terms, he warns these Jewish believers against apostasy, falling away from God, rejecting the faith, and turning their backs on Christ. He says to them, if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. There just remains a certain terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries of Christ. Think there's no hell? You're wrong. Several interpretive questions jump out at us from this text. The first is, what does the author have in mind when he speaks of sinning willfully? The second is, does the phrase, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, define a genuine conversion experience, or can it mean something else? And finally, what does he mean when he says that under these circumstances there remains no more sacrifices for sins? Let me treat these questions in order. The first issue, what he means by sinning willfully, is a good example of the need to interpret biblical text in context. Folks, when you come to the Bible, somebody says the devil can always quote Scripture to his own purpose, and that is so true. Everything must be taken in context. You and I would get really fried if people went around quoting us out of context. People are always running around ignorantly quoting the Scripture out of context. So should we fail to do that, we will fall prey to the same error that some in post-apostolic times stumbled into. They taught that the atoning work of Christ wiped away all the uncleanness of the past up to the point of baptism. But they said if people willingly sinned in some manner after baptism, especially in a sexual transgression, they said they'd be lost again forever. Now that teaching completely misses the whole point of Hebrews. That point being that the atoning work of Christ is all sufficient to cover our sins forever. In understanding this phrase, sinning willfully, 
It is helpful, I think, to recall the New Testament perspective on faith in Christ as an act of obedience. For example, in John chapter 6, verses 28 through 29, the Jews asked Jesus what they should do to do the works of God. Well, Jesus replied, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. In that same vein, you'll recall the Apostle Paul's self-description of his mission among the Gentiles as being, quote, to bring about obedience of faith among them. That is, to bring about that obedience to God which consists in faith and the gospel of Christ. So, here, sinning willfully, in context, is a form of that presumptuous or high-handed disobedience to God, for which, in the Old Testament sacrificial system, there was no provision for forgiveness. In the final analysis, if they reject Christ, after once seeing and confessing the truthfulness of the truth about Christ, and then they turn around and they reject him, that, of course, is rebellion. That, of course, is willful disobedience. It's not a disobedience of a blind and ignorant kind, but of a very willful kind. And for that, there is no pardon ever. In answering that question, I pretty much tipped our hand about the meaning of the second. What does he mean by having received the knowledge of the truth? We've all seen it many times, folks. We've seen it in a case like Judas. We've seen it in a case like Simon Magnus in the book of Acts, who was apparently converted, and then he wanted to buy the gift of the Holy Spirit. We've seen it even apparently in the case of Demas, an associate of the Apostle Paul, who abandoned Paul having loved this present world. All these were beneficiaries up close and personal of the truth of Jesus Christ. So much so that they at one point saw it, they owned it, they declared it. They may even have taught it to others. I mean, Judas was sent out with the other twelve on a mission assigned to them by the Lord Jesus Christ to go into towns and villages and proclaim the kingdom of God. But somewhere along the line, some force of personal circumstances influenced these people to turn away from Christ, and they became bitter enemies of the cross. Some of you probably know this, but there was a young evangelist contemporary of Billy Graham. In Graham's earlier years, his name was Charles Templeton. He renounced his faith and became an atheist. This phenomenon of apostasy is where people join the faith and the ranks of the faithful, and then they renounce Christ, and that's not a new phenomenon. But our author wants his readers to know the consequences are too awful to think about. Before taking that up, however, there's a third question. What does he mean when he says there's no more sacrifice for sin for those who apostatize? He means just that if they as Jews reject Christ as their mediator, they reject him as their sacrifice in favor of the ritual cultus or system of worship, then they've abandoned the only game in town. That's what he means. He means there's no sacrifice anywhere in the universe that will avail to take away their sins. They're out in left field in deep water and high weeds and without a paddle. And that is only the beginning of their liabilities, should they turn their backs on Christ, their sacrifice. In that case, they have waiting for them the prospect of a terrifying rendezvous with divine judgment, the prospect of a certain terrifying expectation, the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries of Christ, which is what they will make themselves if they now turn their backs on him. 
We'll come back to this in our next study. Thank you, dear friends, for joining us on The Final Word. God bless you and have a wonderful day. The Final Word is a listener-supported ministry. Should you want to partner with us or want other information about this program, please visit our website at thefinalwordradio.com. Our postal address is The Final Word, 4565 Carmen Drive, Lake Oswego, Oregon, 97035. Our email address is info at thefinalwordradio.com. Our phone number is 503-699-9840. If this program has ministered to you, tell a friend about it. We do solicit your prayers for God's hand upon this outreach. Be sure the word. Be sure the word. Just be sure the word gets in their hands.